The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most misunderstood messages that Jesus ever gave. One group uh, says that it's God's plan of salvation, that if we ever uh, are to have hope to go into heaven, we must obey these rules that Jesus is giving here in the text. We know the gospel teaches us something different than that. Another group calls it a charter for world peace, and it begs uh, the nations of the earth to accept it, meaning if everybody in the world would uh, just adhere to these principles that Jesus gives, we might have world peace. Um, Still, there's other groups who tell us that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to today at all, Um, that it will apply at some future time, perhaps uh, during the tribulation or in the millennial kingdom, But I think verse number 20 of Matthew 5 is the key to this important sermon that Jesus gives. And he says in verse number 20, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so the main theme here is righteousness. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day had an artificial righteousness. They had an external righteousness. Uh, righteousness. It was based on the law. It was based on their works. It was based on trying to keep what the Bible commands uh, that we do. And it's based on trying really hard to be a good person. And a lot of us are trying to do that. A lot of us, religion has taught us to do that. And their righteousness was an external righteousness based on their works. But the righteousness that Jesus here describes is a true in vital righteousness that begins internally in our hearts. And the Pharisees were concerned about the minute details of conduct, but they neglected the major matter of character. Conduct flows out of character. In other words, I behave in accordance with my belief. Belief affects behavior. Do you believe that? So what I believe, what I truly believe at the core of who I am in my heart, if I truly believe something, it's going to change the way I behave. My conduct is going to be changed if my character is changed. And the gospel begins, the gospel that Jesus came to preach, doesn't begin with externals. It doesn't begin with instructions. It doesn't begin with longer lists of things to do. And it doesn't begin with some creed that you need to adhere to. The gospel uh, begins with who you are in your heart and who you are without the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you were to die in your sins, what your eternal destiny would be. And that's what the gospel deals with. And as we look at what Jesus was teaching and what applications the Sermon on the Mount may have to world problems or to future events, whatever applications they may be, it is certain that this sermon has definite applications for us today. And what was taught in the Sermon on the Mount is repeated in the New Testament epistles uh, and instructions for the church today. And so Jesus originally here gives... These words to his disciples, if you saw in verse number one, he's talking to his disciples, and then they shared them with us. And being a master teacher, Jesus did not begin this important sermon with a negative criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. He began with a positive emphasis on righteous character and blessings. And this this, uh, passage could be outlined this way, if you would want to mark this in verse number three. It begins with what we call beatitudes, that... Uh, Beatitudes comes from the Greek word for, or the Latin word rather, beatus from blessed, 
means beatitude. That's where we get these, uh, this word uh, for this portion of Scripture. It has to do with our character, which produces attitudes. And so in verse number 3, he deals with our attitude towards ourselves. In verses 4 through 6, he deals with our attitude towards our sins. In verses 7 through 9, he deals with our attitude towards the Lord. And then in verses 10 through 16, he deals with our attitude toward the world. And that's primarily where we're going to focus today as we talk about these tensions between us and those that are in the world. Now that we're in Jesus, uh, as if you've been saved by grace through faith, if you've received the gospel of Jesus, you're different. You're, you're changed. And that's a forever change that happens. It's not something we're looking forward to happening one day, uh, although there is a change that's going to happen one day to us physically. But I'm changed now. How many, when you received Christ, it changed the way that you thought? It changed the way that you interacted. It had a few people this week uh, sent me some messages and said, Pastor, I was in this situation and I did not act as I would ordinarily act. These are people that have just recently received the gospel. And ordinarily, I would do this, but instead, I felt that I needed to do this. And it was interesting because they were a little surprised, shocked, that they were changed. They had changed in their behavior, not because they tried to change, not because they turned over a new leaf, but because they received by faith the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need, by the way. We need a change of heart. We need a change of mind. And that is not produced by trying harder through outward externals. You can try really hard to be a good person, but that doesn't change your heart. You can try to do good works and be a good person, but that doesn't change the way that you think. But Jesus, he introduced this revolution. And that is that he was going to pay for and die for our sins, and through that, reception of his purchased redemption for us. He, he died in our place. He took our place. We understand this, that there's a price that has to be paid for, for our sins. The Bible says, for all, are, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we understand through the gospel is that we are sinners but we're not without hope because we have a loving Savior who came and He died for us. He took our place. See, religion is man's attempt to get closer to God. And we try hard through externals. We try hard through our rituals. We try hard through the things that we do outwardly to get closer to God. But the gospel teaches us that we could not get close to God. As a matter of fact, no matter how hard we tried, we fell short of God, and we could not reach God because there's this gap between us and God that separates us from God, and that is our sin. And only that gap could be bridged if somebody paid for our sins. Now, who could pay for our sins? We couldn't. I couldn't pay for your sins. I'm a sinner. You can't pay for your sins. Your, your, your good works doesn't pay for your sins. It can't. It can't redeem. It can't undo what you've done. But Jesus... God in the flesh came and he died on the cross for you. He took your place. And when he took your place, he lived a sinless life. He made himself, the Bible says, of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. He became obedient to death, the Bible says, even even the death of the cross. And his own followers didn't understand what Jesus was doing until after he died and rose from the grave. 
Because then the gospel made sense. Why did Jesus come? Jesus didn't just come to die on a cross. Jesus came to be resurrected to show us that he had power over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And to set us free from its power over us. Some of us would like to be set free from our sins. And here's the good news. You can be set free through the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what happens. Maybe you've just recently come to the Lord and you're struggling now because now you're kind of like a fish out of water. You, you, you've, you've entered into this new relationship with God by faith, but it's kind of disoriented you from your old life. As a matter of fact, the way Jesus describes it is that old things have passed away and all things have become new. So now you're seeing things differently. You're thinking differently. And now there's tensions in our culture that you're going to have to navigate. And as a matter of fact, sometimes what we think when we receive Christ is that everything in our life is just going to be easy now. But this is what Jesus tells us. If you're going to come after me, you're going to take up a cross to follow me. In other words, there's going to be some difficulty. There's going to be hardship in this life to following Jesus. It's why a lot of people turned away from following Jesus. Because following Jesus is not about you getting your best life now. Following Jesus is not about you receiving prosperity. Following Jesus is not about you having health, wealth, and all the things that we think or want to use Jesus to get. Some people use God for hopes of business success. Some people use God in hopes for financial success. They want to use God, and they want God. Now, don't get me wrong. God blesses us, but it's not always financially. It's not always physically. God does bless us, but knowing God is its blessing in itself. Being in a relationship with God is its own reward. And what we see today, by and large, that's being preached in the world is a prosperity gospel. That is a gospel that is telling us that you can receive Jesus and continue to live as you lived before because all Jesus wants to give you is what you want. But when we receive Jesus truly, what we find out is that what Jesus came to give us is not at all what we expected and not at all what we even desired because we didn't even desire righteousness before Jesus. What we desired to be noticed. Why did the Pharisees go around doing the things that they did? They want people to notice them. They wanted notoriety. They wanted power. They wanted popularity. It's the reason why sometimes people even come to church or they get involved in social circles at all. They want to be part of a club or part of a social group, something that they you know, can climb a ladder in. And it's all about me. And some people even make church gatherings about themselves. It's about what I want. It's about what I get. It's about my preferences. And that's not what the church is at all. The church is simply this. It's a called out body assembly of people. They have been called out of darkness into light. And this is what Jesus said. Now, in our text in Matthew 5, ye are the light of the world. Listen, if everything around us is dark and we're the light, it's going to attract some things to us. You ever, on a summer day, uh, have a summer evening, have a, a light on in the, in the nighttime? What happens? There's some things attracted to the light that are good, and there's some things attracted to the light that are not good. Um, by the nature of light, it attracts bugs, right? Uh, by the nature, there's, there's some that come and they're attracted to the light for Uh, for just their nature, to want to see and be around. And some are curious. 
uh, towards what light is. And, and by and large, what happens in our Christian life is we become light. Let your light so shine, the Bible says, before men. What happens? Well, we get attracted to or attracted by some things that can become pests to us as believers, but also some difficulties, but also some blessings. And so we're going to see that today. But how do we navigate this? And we're going to use this text as a launching point to examine the tensions that exist for us as believers. And I want to say this, number one, as we look at uh, these three things today. Not loving the world, but loving your neighbor. Not loving the world, but loving your neighbor. And let me premise that with saying this, what the world is. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. When John 3.16 uses that word world, it's talking about the people in the world. It's not talking about the systems of the world. But how many know that what happens to us as believers, God says this. He doesn't say God so loved the world and in Christian love not the world. He's not talking about the people of the world. This is where sometimes Christians get confused when they read the Bible. They say, well, now that I'm a believer, I'm not supposed to love the world. The Bible says love not the world. And so they get confused and they think that means people that are in the world I'm not supposed to love. Quite the contrary. What the Bible calls us is to love our neighbors. And Jesus defines what that is. Is We looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan. It teaches us, if you want to look at it, Luke chapter 19, it teaches us that we're not only to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also our neighbors. And in Jesus' day, the idea of neighbor and brother was the same thing. Love and support were to be only shown to one's tribe, to one's race, to those that were the same faith as you were. But Jesus, when he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, he made the two main figures in the parable to be a Jew and a Samaritan because he was driving home the fact that a Christian must consider anyone at all, especially those of other races and classes, as my neighbor. Isn't that interesting? So he teaches that we're, we're supposed to consider anyone at all as our neighbor and we're supposed to love our neighbor. Well, how am I supposed to be a Christian in the world, not loving the world, but loving everyone in the world? That creates a difficult tension for me. Um, Let me say this. I don't have to approve of everyone's behavior to accept them. In the culture that we live in, they're using the word acceptance as approval. And that's where there's a difficulty for us as believers Because they're saying we should accept everyone. Now, here's the truth. We should accept everyone. In other words, we should love them. We should accept them as they are, who they are. We should love them. We should accept them. We should not expect them to change in order for us to accept them. Now, that's difficult as we meet people of varying cultural differences from us, political opinions in us, as we've talked about some of those tensions, people that have different Uh, views of morality, that becomes very difficult for us as believers. And this is where sometimes Christians get separation to be isolation, meaning I'm not supposed to be around anyone who doesn't agree with me. Now, what's the point that Jesus makes later on? And we're going to get to this. He says, we're supposed to be salt and we're supposed to be light. Some Christians have an isolationist view. That means I'm supposed to insulate myself and isolate myself so much from the world that I'm not ever touching it and it's never touching me. Now, that is not what Jesus is teaching here at all. But in the culture that we live in, 
they're mix, mix, uh, mixing the two things of approval and acceptance. In other words, I accept my children because they're my children. But I don't always approve of their behavior. Are you with me? I, ex- I can accept all people as they are as people. But it doesn't mean that I have to approve of their behavior. And that's where the world is saying, hey, listen, you have to accept me. But what I mean by that is you have to vote for me. You have to vote for what I'm doing. You have to, you have to cast your, you have to agree with me about my lifestyle. You have to agree with me about my behaviors. I can love someone and I can accept someone, but I don't have to approve of everything that they do. That, that doesn't work. It, it works in every relationship. Uh, I don't always approve. You may not always approve of what your children do. You may not always approve about what your spouse does. You may not always approve, but you should never stop accepting them. You should never stop loving them. And that's where sometimes the church has a tension to navigate because we confuse the two as well. We think, well, I can't be involved with someone who doesn't agree with me on every issue. How many know that you're not going to really be involved with anyone then? Because there's very few people, including those that are in this room, that would agree with you on every issue. I mean, social media would clearly tell us that we have varying degrees and opinions on a lot of things, right? But should, be, should those be reasons why we separate from each other? Should we allow ourselves to be divided? As a matter of fact, the Bible spends a lot of time telling us to be careful about what we allow to divide us. And the church today is fractured in many ways. There's a lot of infighting in church. Here's what I know is that there's a lot of good churches in our area, and we may not be your cup of tea. We may not be the church that you decide that you're going to join with. We don't believe that we're the only good church in the area. But I know a lot of churches that think they are. We're the only ones. Listen, we may be the only ones that do certain things, but it doesn't mean we're the only ones that have it right. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of things that we don't get right, and we know that. We're not going to do everything right as a body of believers. And I'm not, when I say a body, I'm, sometimes, again, our mindset is we're thinking about the organization or the place, and we're not thinking of ourselves. Just by the nature of what a church is, it's a group of people. Don't you understand that a group of people is going to fail to be perfect? So you're never going to find a perfect environment. You're never going to find a perfect marriage. You're never going to find a perfect family. You're never going to find a perfect church. We'll never have perfect government officials and rulers. We're never going to be in perfect harmony. We understand that. And so what do we have to do? We have to navigate different tensions as believers And some believe that the best way to do that is only find a small group of people that agree with you about everything. But God says, don't love the world. And what does he tell us that's in the world? He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's talking about the systems of this world. What I understand as a believer is that I'm not part of this world system, but I am part of the people of this world. There's a system that's evil in this world. That's dark in this world. There's a system of sin in this world. There's a system of immorality in this world. There is, there is a real enemy. If God is real, then the devil's real. Are you with me? We have a very real enemy, and he's seeking to kill, steal and to kill and to destroy. He's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He loves, by the way, in the church, a couple things. He loves when the people of the church are just asleep, complacent. 
not engaged in their Christianity, not engaged in the things of God, just kind of going through life, seeking comfort from the systems of this world. I'm comfortable, I'm happy, I got what I want, I don't want to shake anything up. Sometimes that's why when we present things like the mission field or going somewhere else, we're like, I can't be a part of that. That, that, would, that would make me uncomfortable. That, w- that would make me, listen, we're not supposed to be seeking the comforts in the systems of this world. We're supposed to be seeking to love the people of this world. And the best way that we can love the people of this world is to share the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ with them wherever we go. But that's a tension that we have to navigate and manage, isn't it? Because we live here, but we're not from here. We live here, but we're not from here. We now are citizens of heaven. We become children of God. Paul follows up with this uh, command in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 10. He says, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. And Paul tells believers to serve the the interests of their non-Christian neighbors. The word good includes giving material benefits as the parable of the good Samaritan out of love for a person's well-being in every way. Thus, Paul uh, says, calls Christians to consider and work for the common good of the neighborhood and city. Jesus drove home the fact that a Christian must consider anyone at all, especially those of other races and classes, as my neighbor. Here's a question for you. If Jesus told us to love our neighbors, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? You say, well, those are the people that live on either side of me and across the street from me. Jesus was trying to clarify culturally that your neighbor should be, should be anyone. Your neighbor should be anyone, anyone else in the world. As a matter of fact, he showed them why they had an improper view of who their neighbors were because they looked to their neighbors as being those who were racially the same as them, those who were socially the same as them, those who were religiously the same as them. Let me ask you a question. Isn't it easy to love people who are like you because you love yourself? It is, right? Now, none of us want to say that we love ourselves, but the Bible says it for us, so we don't have to. We, we know we naturally love ourselves. Even in the command that God gives to husbands, he says, love your wife like you love yourself, because you love yourself. You take care of yourself. As a matter of fact, here's the culture that we live in. The culture doesn't start with the anthem, love others. It starts with the anthem, love self. Love self. How many have heard things like this? And I've heard even Christians almost regurgitate this like it comes from the scriptures. Love yourself first, because if you don't love yourself, nobody else will love yourself. Do for yourself first. Take care of number one. Look out for yourself, because if you don't take care of yourself, then you won't be able to take care of anybody else. Now, let me ask you this. What example did Jesus give us? He sacrificed himself to love us. As a matter of fact, he said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus embodied that. Jesus showed us that. But how many, let me just ask you, how many want to lay down your life for your neighbor? Many of us would say, well, I'd die for my family. I might consider dying for my close friends. I, I, I may even, in some conditions, Find a good person. That's what the Bible says. For a good man, some would even dare to die. But then it tells us this in Romans. For a good man, some would even dare to die. 
But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The example that Jesus gave is that He died for us, His enemies. He died for us because He considered us to be His neighbors. Aren't you glad that Jesus considered you to be His neighbor when you were His enemy? You were at enmity with God. Your nature was against God's nature. As a matter of fact, we were all together become unprofitable. There was none that doeth good. There was none that seeking after God. No, not one. The Bible is clear about that. But the gospel is a wonderful thing because it shows us that Jesus loved us when we were unlovely. That Jesus sacrificed himself. You say, well, that's great. Jesus did that. I'm not God and I'm not Jesus and I don't need to do that. Well, here's the truth. If you truly understood and believed the gospel and repented of your sins, then it's changed the way that you think about your life in the here and now and caused you to understand that if you were to give your life for somebody else and you were to give your life in such a way that you could give your life, the Bible describes, Paul described it this way, as a living sacrifice. To give your life as a living sacrifice A lot of us, we don't like to talk about sacrifice because we believe we sacrifice enough. You know, I gave up up my Starbucks so I could give in the offering today. That's sacrifice, you know, really sacrifice. I mean, you don't understand, you know, what I gave up today. I, I gave up, you know, this or I gave, I mean, we give up. I mean, could you imagine if we gave up Wi-Fi for a day? I mean, if we gave up, it's amazing when we go over to Zambia and we all learn what what Wi-Fi is in Africa. How many remember AOL? Dial-up. Some of you have no idea what that even is. It's amazing the things that we think we sacrifice. Well, there are people that are in this world truly who are sacrificing everything to get the gospel into the world. There are some today that are being martyred for their faith. Some being persecuted. Uh, Let's not forget as we approach or have approached in this month Uh, the day that we remember the persecuted church. There are people right now in our country, or in, in, in our world rather, not our country, but in our world, that are being persecuted, truly persecuted physically. It's costing them to have a Bible. It's costing them to share the gospel. It's costing them. Listen, we in our country, we kind of consider it a nice add on if we go to church at all. There are people in countries in our world who are not allowed to attend church, who are not allowed to openly, publicly worship. Sometimes we come together and we complain about our worship. But they, they would love to worship God. They would love to gather in a setting like this. If they had the opportunity to do that, can I say this? Don't wait until your freedoms are taken away to appreciate them and to exercise them. One of the ways that we lose our freedoms as Americans is we fail to exercise those freedoms. We have them, we like to have them, but we don't exercise them. Listen, Christians, we've received many, many rewards and blessings, truly as being Americans. And to be able to religiously gather, to be able to hear the word of God publicly, not to be afraid of somebody coming in and and, and breaking up the meeting or arresting someone or putting me in jail for a hate crime for preaching the word of God. Are you with me? There are places in our world that are like that. Let's not take for granted what we have. I know you can hear that, but sometimes it's amazing how comfortable we are that it just kind of goes in one ear and out the other. We never truly think about it, meditate on it. And God tells us here, love not the world, but love your neighbor. 
It's no wonder that Christians today seek to obey Christ and Paul. They have, for centuries, think about what Christians who have obeyed the Word of God done in our culture. We're not disengaged from culture. Because of Christians, we've seen slavery abolished. Because of Christians, we've repealed child labor laws. Because of Christians, we've lobbied to open uh, uh, rights to vote to all citizens. I'm talking about Christians have sought in our history to free people who are enslaved because of cultural things. And listen, the culture of our world is not any better today than it was back then in a sense of the evil that exists. We still have evil and, and battles to wage. But may we not be the type of church that sits in here and curses the darkness and just points out there and say, all the bad, all the evils, those that don't go to church and the people that aren't, you know, that aren't in, in the Word of God or people that aren't, don't know Christ, instead may we go into the world and live the gospel by loving people that are around us. Let me ask you a question. What neighbor did you love this week? What neighbor did you love this week? You said, well, you know, I have a hard enough time just loving the people that are, you know, close to me in my life. I understand. But you know what? We might change the world that we live in, church, if we would go out and love our neighbors. And we would look at people all around us, whether they're racially the same as us or religiously the same as us or socially the same as us and view them as our neighbors, and view them as people, and view them also as souls that need to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this tension sometimes is gone. We go to extremes in navigating this tension, and then we disengage from the culture that we live in, rather than living in the culture and loving the people that are around us. I've heard Christians say things like this, I don't have any friends who aren't believers. With pride say that. I don't have any friends that aren't believers. Listen, you should get some friends that are not believers. You say, well, they're going to influence me. Listen, if you're a believer, knowing people who are different than you shouldn't change you. You've been changed from the inside. Now, we have to be careful what we're involved with, but can we remember that Jesus was a friend to publicans and sinners? Not that he engaged with their sin, but he did sit with them. He did fellowship with them. He did did spend time with them. And sometimes as Christians, we're so much out there in here. We're insider-outsider in our culture. Sometimes people, they don't even want to come to church because of the insider-outsider culture that exists in the church. In other words, we we, we want to make the church as comfortable for the people that gather here and as uncomfortable for the people who don't. I think we need to turn that on its head a little bit. We say, hey, listen, we're a place that wants to share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone. And we will accept and love anyone and everyone. But that doesn't mean we approve. The Bible doesn't approve of sin. The Bible doesn't approve of behaviors. This is where churches get this tension wrong. There's some churches here that are, are waving flags they shouldn't wave. Are you with me? They're showing approval towards certain lifestyles they shouldn't show approval towards. You know why? Because we can't approve of things that God doesn't approve of. But we can accept the people that are lost in those sins and those conditions. Aren't you glad that God reached down to us in our conditions? The problem is, is a lot of times we don't think we were that bad. 
We don't think we were that bad. We really don't think, well, God saved me. He really got a gem, you know. What a good Christian he got. If you, if you don't see who you were without Jesus, if you don't know who you are without Christ, then maybe you haven't received the gospel. Maybe you just became religious. Loving not, loving, not loving the world, but loving your neighbor. The second tension that we meet in our culture often that Jesus spoke about often was laboring not to be rich, but laboring for God's glory. Laboring not to be rich, but laboring for God's glory. The Bible tells us this, labor not to be rich. Labor not to be rich. What's the purpose of all of our work? The New Testament tells us to do absolutely everything for the glory of God. That's what uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. And that includes one's vocation and work. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Let me ask you a question. How much glory is God getting from the things that you're doing in life? And how much of that is about your pleasure, about your own amusement? Labor not to be rich, but labor for the glory of God. Does that mean that you can't make money? That's not what the Bible's saying. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is. If the purpose and the goal of you as a Christian laboring here in this earth is just to be rich, then you've got the wrong purpose and the wrong goal. We're supposed to labor for the glory of God. In other words, people should know Christ because of our labor, our careers. Is there any career in which a Christian can have to where he's not serving God? No. All of our labors, all of our career paths are supposed to be for the glory of God. So there's certain things that I can't labor in. Certain, maybe there's certain jobs I can't have. Because those jobs don't honor God. They don't bring God glory. There are certain companies I may not choose to work for because their purpose and their intent is corrupt. There are certain things that I'll just not engage in. But I need to, wherever I'm at, whatever profession, whatever place God has gifted me, I need to labor for the glory of God. Work and cultural production is not neutral. It's never neutral, as a matter of fact. It's always driven by particular beliefs, about what life is about, what people are for, what is right and what is wrong. And in every profession, gospel beliefs will affect how we do our work. Do you believe this, that you should be a better employee because you're a Christian? Yes, because it changes our our character. I understand that now, whatever job I hold, I'm not working ultimately for my boss, I'm working for the glory of God. So everything I do... Does that, is that going to make me honest? Yes. Because lying doesn't glorify God. Cheating doesn't glorify God. Stealing doesn't glorify God. Being lazy doesn't glorify God. Being just part of this world system and not working doesn't glorify God. Are you with me? What we understand as believers is that now whatever I do, I need to do all to the glory of God. What glorifies God, it changes the way I view my work. Listen, if coming together on Sunday doesn't change me on Monday, then I don't have something that's real. If just gathering with the church, just so I can get it out of the way, you know, I went to church today, no, that's, that's done. Now I can go back to living my life. Listen, Christianity is not 
a place you attend. Christianity is a life that you hold. It's a life that you live. It's 24 hours a day. It's seven days a week. As we get up tomorrow morning, I hope we're still Christians. If you died tonight, you'll hope you're still a Christian. How many many glad that nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand? How many glad that when you come to a relationship with, with the Lord, He promises to never leave you or forsake you? How many, if you were God, would have left you and forsaken you a long time ago? I mean, we understand that we fail and we fall. But this is what the Bible teaches us. A just man falleth seven times, but gets up again. Can I say this to you? If you fail and fall this week, get up again. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel. Don't shift your view. The culture that we live in is pulling us away from, as believers, from focusing on every day living to the glory of God. And that's a tension that we're going to have to navigate. Tomorrow when I go to my job, tomorrow when you go to your job, we're going to have to navigate this tension that's in our world of saying, hey, listen, whatever I'm doing, I need to do this to the glory of God. Nothing is neutral for the Christian. Sometimes the differences between believer and non-believer are not very great in practice, but if we practice law and supervise our employees and do art in a way that increasing, that's increasingly informed by Christian faith, it will lead at least indirectly to changing social mores and social norms. What happens when Christians live like Christians in whatever profession that they have, the culture does get changed. The world does get changed. It just doesn't happen all the time from the pulpit. What I understand is today, my job is not to change the world. My job is to encourage you, equip you, edify you, use the word of God. Hey, what does it do? It corrects us, instructs us, and it reproves us, and it informs us so that you go out and change the world. The church, listen, we're going to leave here. And when we go out, may our community be a better community because we're in it. If your kid plays on a, a sports team in the community, if you're involved in volunteer, if you are in the hospital, if you are wherever you're at, listen, wherever you're at, the world gets changed when we follow Christ where we are. You're going to have opportunities to not follow Christ. You're going to have opportunities to live for yourself. You're going to have opportunities to look out for yourself and not do what would be pleasing to Christ. But boy, what we understand as believers is that the world truly gets changed when we live as believers wherever we are. And that's what God wants us to understand. Laboring not to be rich, but laboring for God's glory. And then the third thing today, being separate, but being salt. Being separate but being salt. I've heard these almost exclusively presented as if they don't go together. In other words, um, you may have heard preaching this way as well, but we're supposed to be separate from the world. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. I understand. Being separate from the world, but does the Bible ever contradict itself? What does the Bible say about the grace of God that brings salvation? It teaches us what to live godly and soberly and righteously that is living separate, but in this present world. In other words, I'm not supposed to be separate in the sense of being apart from, but I'm supposed to touch it and be a part of the world that I live in 
But I'm supposed to live in the world differently. I'm supposed to live in the world differently. That's difficult to do, isn't it? Because we tend to be followers. And we follow that we're afraid of what's around us. And you ought to be careful because there's some things that you shouldn't be involved in. There are some things you shouldn't touch. There's some things that you should engage with. There's some things you should stay away from as believers. But notice what Jesus introduces here in Matthew 5. He tells his disciples, verses 13 through 16, that they're to be the what? The salt of the earth, and they're to be a city on a hill whose good deeds are a light that will lead non-believers to praise the Father in heaven, which is a strange thing, that people who don't know Jesus would praise Jesus, that people that don't know Jesus would appreciate Jesus, that people that don't know Jesus, there have been times in the Old Testament that people who didn't know Jesus appreciated the fact that that were people that knew God that were there. I think about Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. While he did a lot of bad things and said a lot of bad things, he appreciated the fact that Daniel was there. He praised even Daniel's God. Pharaoh, many times, praised the God of the Israelites. And why did he praise him? Because of the faith that was exemplified in their lives as they lived for the glory of God. Christians are supposed to be this way. Jesus is indicating that Christians out in the world who are living lives consistent with the gospel keep society from deteriorating morally, socially, and culturally. Because salt dispersed into meat was a preservative. That's what he is uh, talking about when he talks about salt. Think about how in their culture they use salt because Jesus is giving this illustration. He he says in verse number 13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted or preserved? It is thenceforth good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under foot the foot of men. What good is your Christianity if it has no preserving factor in the world that you live in? If it doesn't affect the world around you? If it doesn't preserve the world? Can you think about what the world would be like without Christianity? without Christians. If the church could close down today and it wouldn't affect the community at all, that's very telling about what we're doing. If it wouldn't affect the community at all for our church to close down, it's very telling, isn't it? It may affect you, but would it affect the community? Would the community be affected by the church closing down? You say, why? Well, we should have outreaches into our community that bring peace, that bring joy, that bring blessing to those even that are not believers, that because the church is here, the community is better. Sometimes the community views the church as being a pox, being a drain, being a negative. And I understand if it's for the right reasons, that's okay. But if it's for the wrong reasons, if it's because of the way that we are, I'm talking about we come here, but we live like hypocrites. We gather here, but we don't live the way we preach. Are we living the way that we're preaching? Are we living of the gospel in the world that we're in? 
Listen, if you want to know if the gospel is making a difference in your life, look first in your house. If the gospel makes no difference in your marriage, and the gospel makes no difference in your children's lives, then I would submit to you that it's probably not making any difference outside of that. That's the first place the gospel makes a difference, isn't it? The first place it should touch is our homes. Would you agree? I mean, the gospel should change the way we treat each other at home. It should change the way that we treat our spouse. It should change the way we treat our children. It should change the way we treat one another here. And that should overflow out into the community that we live in. And it changes the way that we treat one another and we interact with one another. In a parallel passage in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, Peter says to uh, them, I want to read it to you. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your lifestyle or conversation honest among the Gentiles, unbelievers, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. What's he talking about? He's saying that Christians living life in the world evoke persecution in some respects and yet will nevertheless influence many pagans or unbelievers or Gentiles to praise God. Does the way that you're living your life in the world, in the culture that we find ourselves, does it cause people around you to look at your God positively or negatively? How many want people to view our God positively. Do you know that you have a lot to do with that? I think some people haven't rejected the gospel. I think some people just have rejected Christians. I think if they have the opportunity to truly hear the good news of the gospel, they'd accept that. But if it came from the lips of somebody who truly was living it, it might change them. Would you agree that the problem in our world with reaching the world for Christ is not the gospel message. It's the gospel messengers. Has the gospel lost any of its power? Do you believe that the God... I know it's quiet. I know this is kind of that message, but I'm I'm just asking you, is the gospel as powerful today as it was when Jesus first preached it? It hasn't lost any of its power. People talk about that all, well, you know... People just don't get saved like they used to. No, Christians just don't live like they used to. Christians don't share the gospel like they used to. Christians don't live the gospel like they used to. Listen, if we we went out and shared the gospel, this is what happens. Listen, church, the most telling thing is not how many people gather on Sunday morning the most telling thing about the church is how many people gather for prayer meeting. How how many people gather when we go out and share the gospel with people? Say, well, that's just not my thing. If you're a Christian, it needs to be your thing. Well, I give so other people can go. What is that? You're paying someone else to be your witness? You, You have to have a voice for the Lord. How many people heard the gospel, not necessarily from your lips this week, but how many heard it from your life this week? Say, how can people hear the gospel from my life? When you love people who don't love you. When you deal with people the way Christ would deal with them, 
when they don't deal with you properly, when they don't deal with you right, when you respond the way Jesus responds, that's how people can hear and see the gospel. I want people to ask what's different about me, not, and not because I'm being strange. Are you with me? Sometimes people ask what's different about us because we're acting in a really weird way. And some Christians pride themselves in being weirder and weirder. Well, we're so different from the culture. You know, it's almost like, listen, the Amish people are different from the culture. And tourists go there to take pictures of them. Is that what we want to be? So different that we're not even, we don't live the same way that everybody else around us lives. They dress differently. They they live differently. They act differently. And I'm not against the Amish. God bless them. For, For some of them, they have more peaceful lives because they're not engaged in some of the things that we're so engaged with. But the one thing they're lacking is the gospel. They're doing it for religious things. Listen, you could drive into Lakewood and see people that dress differently from you, that live differently from you, who talk differently from you. But does anybody want to know their God? Listen, when when we live in a way that doesn't honor God, we don't want to know that person's God. Christians, when we live, and it's just about externals, it's about the way that we dress, and it's about the way that we gather, and it's about the things that we do, and it's about how we sing, and it's about all these different things. Listen, nobody wants to know that God. But they do want to know the God or the person who, when they treat them wrong, doesn't respond in kind. When they're reviled, they don't revile again. When they suffer, they don't threaten When they're persecuted and mistreated, they love, they give, they sacrifice. And you can't keep them down. They just keep loving and loving and loving and loving. No matter how hateful the world becomes, we become more loving. No no matter how violent and volatile the world becomes, we become more peaceful. You see what Jesus was truly introducing to the disciples? We can let the culture continue to go in the direction that it's going and say, hey, we want to disconnect from it entirely, not have anything to do with it. Or we can say this, we're in the culture, we live in the time that God has placed us in, so I don't have to long for 30 years ago or 40 years ago or 100 years years ago. In the good old days, when church was the way that I remember it, I can just say, no, people need the church today. People need to be introduced to the church of today that's being salt and light today. And we're different, yes. But our differences are attractive. That's what Jesus is talking about. Salt. Have you ever eaten something that didn't have salt on it? Salt is not just a preservative, but it's a pleasurable ingredient. And notice what salt does. It enhances the goodness of something. It's not meant over-salted, well, it, just, it just takes the taste away. Properly seasoned, it makes the taste as it should be. Listen, what are we here to do? Season the world. Preserve the world. Make a difference in the world. We are here to make the world a better place, but we're also here to tell people, no matter how good it gets here, it's not going to be where we stay. There is another citizenship, there is another country that we're going to. And we're just journeying through. And while we are, we're pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ who has changed us. 
don't know about you, but I can't live this way unless I have the love of Jesus in me. How many have tried really hard to do, you know, like you do it for a week and that's like, all right, I'm done my good deed. I had somebody open the door for me today while I was carrying a coffee and he said, check, good deed done. I was like, wow, he's really keeping track. Like out loud like that. Check, good deed done. And while it was funny, and we both laughed, it's sad that that's truly how people are living their lives. That it's about how many good deeds I can do and how long I can sustain and prolong that and whether or not God will accept me as a result of if I do enough. Here's the truth today. You're never going to be good enough for God to accept you, but Jesus was good enough for you. Jesus was the righteous one. Remember what Jesus said in verse 20 of our text? Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, of the scribes and Pharisees. You shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. What was he talking about? Not that we would be more religious in our actions than the Pharisees. I don't know if you could be more religious than the Pharisees. The Pharisees... You know, they dotted every T and cross, or crossed every I. Yeah, that's the way they did. They, they dotted, that's, how I, that's how I write. They dotted every I, crossed every T of the law. But Jesus said, you're like, you're like a whited sepulcher. You're like a well-painted tomb. You got it all together on the outside, but in your heart, you've honored me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You have cleansed the outside of the cup, but the inside is filthy. And it doesn't matter how many things you do on the outside, you can't cleanse your heart. You can't clean your own heart. And guess guess what? Jesus died to make your heart clean. And if you'll receive that today, the Bible says, For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Religion is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. This church is not the answer. Denominations are not the answer. Jesus is the answer. And if you'll receive Jesus as your Savior, and you'll repent of your sins, Jesus will give you a character on the inside that's new. It'll change the way you think. It'll change the way you live. It'll change the way you love. And that's what he wants to do for you today. But it's going to bring attention into living in this world. Not power that we seek, but service. The commands to love our neighbor, to do all our work out of a Christian worldview, to be salt and light, working for the common good of all city residents, means Christians will, of necessity, be doing cultural renewal. People who say the church should not seek any impact on culture should be asked, should Christians have not worked to abolish slavery? That was a response to God's command to love our neighbor, but it also brought massive social change. Cultural change, by the way, is not the main goal, but it is a byproduct of Christians living the gospel. We're not going out just for cultural change. The main goal is loving service. The main goal is loving and serving God. And as we serve God, how many know that Jesus told us this? If you love God, you love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets are hanging on these two great commandments. Love God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength, and love your neighbor. 
Are you truly loving your neighbor? If we truly seek to serve, we'll be gladly given a certain measure of influence by those around us. If we seek power directly just to get power and to make the world more like us, we will neither have influence nor be of service. Everyone around us will view us with alarm as well they should. If the goal of religion is just to be in power, then the world should be afraid of us. We're not seeking power, we're seeking service. So let me ask you a question today. If you're a believer, where are you serving? So I'm here in church, isn't that service enough? No, this isn't service, this is a huddle. Now we go out and run the play. This is where we come together to hear the play. Now we've got to go out and do it. We need to execute it together in the same way that Jesus would. And how can we do that? We have his spirit. We have his word. Can I say this to you? Read the Bible for yourself. Read the Bible for yourself. I know we like story time with pastor. But read the Bible for yourself. If you want your life to change, this is a life-changing book. It will not just change the way you think. It will change you. Because it's alive, and it's God's word, and you can trust it. You can't trust everything I say, but you can trust everything this says. You say, why would you say that? Because I'm a man, and you can't trust everything a man says. And all the women said... You can't trust everything a man says, but you can trust everything that God says. And we're here to follow Christ. And may we make a difference socially, morally, culturally. Not because it's the main goal to get power, but because our main goal is to be Christ in the world. Salt and light. Ye are the body of Christ. Be salt and be light. A city set up on a hill can't be hid. We teach that kid's song, this light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. I won't make you get your light out today. We say, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Don't hide it under a bush. Don't keep it from people. Listen, don't be so much like the world that we're living in that they can't see Jesus in you, but don't think that your externals are the differences they need to see. Sometimes that's what Christians say. Well, I need to look different so like my hairstyle is different. That's how they'll know I'm a Christian. No, that's how the Jews and the Amish do it. The difference they see in us should be internals that become externals. They know us. They know that you're my disciples because of your love. Because we love different than other people in the world. And may they know us by our love. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.